today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Cash and Carry Kitchens. At the heart of Irish homes for over 40 years. Cashandcarrykitchens.ie Email todaycb at rte.ie now, Northern Ireland's Public Prosecution Service is expected to make a final decision in the coming weeks on whether anyone will be charged in connection with the activities of Steakknife, the British military's top IRA spy during the Troubles. Steakknife is said to be Freddy Scapatici, a West Belfast man who was alleged to be the head of the IRA's internal security team, known as the Nutting Squad, whose job it was to root out informers within the organisation. However, it is claimed that he was also passing on secret information to the British security services at the time. He died in April of last year, having fled Belfast after being named as an informer. Alison Morris, crime correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph, is on the line. Good morning, Alison. Good morning. So we are expecting a decision on this on the 8th of March, which is coming up really soon. The activities of Steakknife were investigated by an independent team of detectives. It was under the banner of Operation Canova. Will you tell us a bit about that and what its aim was, what it was trying to establish? Yeah, so if you go back many years now, what happened was there were so many files that were um, coming across the public prosecution services desk that the then director of the PPS, Barry McGorry, asked the PSNI to have a sort of thematic and in, in investigation to put all these cases into one and, and have them investigated again by the, the PSNI. The police at the time said that because police officers would have you know been under investigation as well, given their role in special branch, that it would require an independent investigation. And so um, that was when Operation Canova came about and it was headed up by John Boucher, a very senior and well-respected detective from England. Mm-hmm. He and took over that investigation and then he has been since then looking at the activities of that informer. And how confident did people feel at the time when John Boucher was appointed to do this because it was a huge job of work he had ahead of him? Well, I, I mean, at the time, I remember being quite cynical because other people had tried and failed to look into that murky world of the intelligence and what role they played during what was rightly called the very dirty war here in Northern Ireland. Um, he was someone of a very different character. He's managed what I think other investigations hadn't and that he managed to keep all the victims' families on board with him. He was quite honest about them in terms of what he thought he could achieve and couldn't achieve. And he says he was given access to intelligence files that no one had ever seen before. He had also then questioned numerous people, including handlers from military intelligence, including that informer steak knife known to be West Belfast man, Freddie Skeptici. Um, and he had spoken to numerous former IRA men under caution as well in relation to this. So it was a really extensive investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is up until now, the PPS have, have ruled no prosecutions in any of the cases of the, the 28 files that were sent to them by Operation Canova. OK, and John Boucher, just to talk a little bit more about him, because it is really fascinating. Um, you, with all your experience, were looking at him going, how are you going to succeed here when others here have failed? What was the key to that? Was it the honesty? Was it, you know, saying to victims' families, I might not be able to do this, but I can do this? Explain to me what you think the secret to his success was. Yeah, he's quite impressive, impressive figure when you meet him and interview him. He's, you know, a former Flan Squad detective. He's, I suppose, what you'd call like an old, an old school cop. You know, he has that sort of persona around him, but it's also very honest in terms of what he felt could be achieved and couldn't be achieved. What he said is at the very minimum, 
he would get truth and truth and answers and information for those families. And I think that that's something Canova will achieve. Will it achieve judicial justice? We'll know that the clock is, has ticked and, and ran out in terms of that. We have legislation which is basically putting an end to all prosecutions anyway, regardless of what the PPS decide in, in these cases. Um, he is now our chief constable, so he is now the chief constable of the PSNI. Um, that came about after um, the former chief constable resigned last September. He had to recuse himself now from anything else to do with Operation Canova because of that, but his report and investigation was completed anyway. Mm-hmm. All that's left now is for the publication of that report, which will happen on March the 8th, or so we were told at the, the last policing board meeting. OK, well, I, I want to talk a bit more now about Freddy's Capatici. And Alison, can you remind us who he was and what he has, is alleged to have done? So Freddie Scapatici is, is the son of Italian um, emigra- immigrants who moved to Belfast right after the Second World War. He was someone who um, he grew up in the market area of Belfast, that sort of industrialised zone of Belfast, which would have been a sort of bustling t- place, you know, port really at the time. Um, he was a very talented footballer, we're told. He had you know, trials with English football teams. Um, and then he was interned during internment in 1971. I am told he wasn't actually a member of the IRA when he was interned. But when, by the time he got out of um, the, the um, internment camp at Longhouse, he was a member of the IRA. He then seemed to rise up through the ranks of that organisation quite quickly until in the late 70s he became a member of what they called the IRA's Internal Security Unit or what was given the name of the Nutting Squad, which were um, the spy catchers, I suppose, within the IRA. They were people sent to investigate um, who might have been an informer, who might have been working for the intelligence service and to see why any IRA, IRA operations had failed, why they had failed. Ironically, around this time, he was obviously recruited First of all, we're told to work for special branch and then for military intelligence. And so while he was interrogating people, he was alleging were informers. He was, in fact, the person who became one of the highest ranking informers mm-hmm. within the IRA. And some of the details uh, around him, around what he's alleged to have done, the torture, uh, the recordings of of confessions by some of these people who uh, are supposed to have said that they were informers and then taking those recordings to the families and playing them back. Yeah, I mean, he seemed to be quite a sadistic person who he actually enjoyed his dual role in this quite gruesome role within the area and also in working for the intelligence services. He um, was involved as taking people away, interrogating them. At times he would have told them that if they just admitted what they had done, he would allow them to go home. Then he would have recorded these confessions. And yeah, then someone, at times him, he himself were told, called to people's houses, but if not, someone else from the area would have called to the families of the victims who had been found. Sometimes they're found, you know, at the border, shot dead. One person was found shoved into a rubbish chute at the, the Dippus Flats complex and said, you know, your loved one admitted to being an informer and here's their last words. And they would have played the confession to them. And those people live with the stigma of that because, remember, all of these people were quite low-level members of the IRA, all these victims who were accused of being informers. And especially in the 70s, um, the 80s and the early 90s, that carried, a, a, you know, an extreme stigma, which is why we still, as journalists, we can speak to these people sometimes off the record, but they're very reluctant to publicly face and give interviews because they still carry it and their children and grandchildren still carry it. And that's the thing that I find saddest about all of this. Mm-hmm. And now we get to the point where 
the file, um, the Operation Canova results sent to the Public Prosecution Service. We're expecting to hear what they're going to do on the 8th of March. Is there much of an expectation, though, now that there will be any prosecutions, Alison? No, no, I'm pretty sure there won't be. I mean, up until now, we've heard that there's been no prosecutions. There's been three separate PPS decisions released. Um, Canova can't be released in March until all those decisions are finalised. So the last of those decisions should come probably in the next week or so. That'll take us right up until 1990 when we're told Freddie she was stood down from the IRA. Right now, the decisions we have take us up to about 1984. Um, and then, you know, once those decisions are released, that frees up the PSNI to then publish the full Canova report, you know, which we're expecting to be quite extensive. Um, and also something that I think, you know, could be used as a template maybe for information recovery going forward in the future. So some sort of a truth and reconciliation process, which has been talked about so much, this maybe could lay the foundation for that. The new legacy bill, which passed through Westminster, does have at the centre of it a truth and information recovery process. What that's going to look like, we don't know. Now, bear in mind, that's currently under challenge, not just by um, some of the victims of the, the conflict in the High Court, but also the Irish government have taken that into a state case in relation to the amnesties that that's going to provide. But once all of that's cleared up, there will be some kind of truth recovery process. And if Canova delivers what it's expected to deliver. I think that that could be one of the things that um, we see Sir Declan Morgan, who's heading up that truth and information recovery process, looking at as a, a possible template. So if, as you seem to suggest, the families now have accepted that there may not be prosecutions resulting from this and they're still haunted by that stigma and you described it to us, what do they want at the end of all of this? I think many do want the truth in terms of they don't believe in many cases that their loved ones were ever an informer or that they were responsible for what the IRA alleged that they had done. They believe that in many cases they were killed to cover up for somebody else as an alibi to someone else or to save someone else's skin. Specifically, um, very skeptical. Some of these people believe that their loved ones were murdered because there were suspicions that there was a high-ranking informer, that there was an informer within these ranks, and very skeptical. He was then throwing these people to the wolves to save his own skin. They'll want to see that, and also, I mean, from a journalist's point of view, I'm interested in is when is the cut-off period? You know, the IRA have have indicated that Freddie Scavatici was in operation after 1990, that he had been stood down. But there are people whose loved ones were abducted in the early 90s who claim that he was involved in those murders and abductions. So Canova should be able to give us a definite timeline to his activities. Well, it's likely, Alison, that we'll want to speak to you again on the 8th of March. So I look forward to talking to you at that point. But for now, thank you very much, Alison Morris, crime correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph. Back after this. Text 51551 today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1.